Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Elena Rose. Comrades and gentlefolk, let me see if I can make this a little higher. Higher ground is supposed to be my thing. I'm a minister, right? Uh, <laughs> God, it's good to be here at Skylight Books and in L.A. I've never been here as a grown-up. It's gorgeous. I keep seeing things that are in song lyrics, so that's very exciting. Um, I'm your MC for tonight. If I get lost, the self-help section is right there, and if I get really lost, the occult section is behind it. So, <laughs> good Lord, aren't you all a gorgeous crowd? Thank you so much for coming out to support us. And we have this, this beautiful book, and they're selling it here at Skylight. And it's this calming color in case, you know, the troubles of our time are, are getting to you. You can just look at this and be soothed. Leave alone the content inside. Um, and thank you so much to all the folks here at Skylight and, um, and all the folks who have helped make this event happen. So, you've probably all had busy days, um, or busy days not being busy, being on the internet, which is very stressful. So how about we all just take a deep breath together, shall we? Look at that. See, it's a little better. How about one more, yeah? We're conspiring now. This is good. I'm being a nerd about Latin roots, it's okay. One more, just because three is a good number, down through the bottom of your feet. All right, so we have an amazing lineup tonight. It's folks that I have loved for years and love working with, and, um, and it's a real pleasure. Uh, but the first person I want to introduce is my erstwhile co-editor who convened this project. Um, because that's always a delight, and because we've been doing this on tour enough that I can get away with it. So, Nia King is a queer, black, les Lebanese, Hungarian, lesbianese, no, that's me, sorry everyone, my mistake, um, is a queer, black, Lebanese, Hungarian, and Jewish artist and activist from Canton, Massachusetts, which is Ponkapog land, and is currently living in Oakland, California, which is Ochlone land. She's the author of Queer and Trans Artists of Color, Stories of Some of Our Lives, which is volume one of this amazing book, um, as well as the interviewer and co-editor on this second volume, and the host and producer of We Want the Airwaves, which is maybe my favorite podcast, and if you don't listen to it, you really should. Her writing and comics have been published in Color Lines, The East Bay Express, and Women in Performance, a journal of feminist theory. Um, and also, she's a real good road trip buddy. Uh, you can find more of her work at artactivistnia.com. Please give a warm welcome to my co-editor. I will now adjust the microphone to co-editor levels. And uh, <laughs> let's give her a hand, shall we? Oh my god, look at all your beautiful faces. <laughs> I feel like everyone says that, but like for real though. Um, and, and not even just in a like, you're aesthetically pleasing to me kind of way, but like thank you for being here. <laughs> um, I'm just going to gush for a minute because I'm so excited to be here. And I know we say that at every show, but like for real, for real. Um, this is the last show on our West Coast tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. 
last or the Saturday before last, Elena and I and our friend Luna Merbruja, who was featured in the first book, drove up from um, Oakland. We drove for two days to get up to Seattle, did a gig at UW, and then drove down to Portland State, did a gig there, and then drove back down to the Bay for two days. And then we had a couple days off where I just slept the entire time. <laughs> the first leg was really grueling, but this leg has been really fun. We got in last night. We like I took a dip in the pool. I painted my nails. We did some shopping. <laughs> I, I took a nap. It was amazing. I was sitting in the pool painting my nails thinking like this might be the happiest I've ever been. <laughs> like I can't remember the last time I was this happy and it's so nice to do a show in this city in this beautiful bookstore to like such a great crowd and, and have so many people come. Um, so thank you all for being here. It really means a lot to me. And thank you to David and Skylight Books. Um, yeah. Um, as a self-published author, it could be really hard sometimes. Like with the first book, I had to beg bookstores to take it. And Skylight has been super supportive from the beginning. They've been carrying the first book for two years, and they were just like really eager to have us here for this event, for the second book. So I'm really, really grateful for that and really grateful for like independent brick-and-mortar bookstores that are still here because they're so important. Okay, I guess I can talk about the book now. <laughs> I think I'm done gushing. I think. Um, I'm going to read the... Oh, no. Okay. I'll talk a little bit about the podcast real quick first. Um, so in, two th in March of 2013, I started a podcast called We Want the Airwaves, where I interview queer and trans artists of color about their lives and their work. Um, Kim Tillman, who's going to be like the first performer, was I think like the second or third um, artist I ever interviewed. Rico was maybe like the seventh or eighth. Um, and now I've done over 60 interviews and, and just put out the second book with Elena Rose. We've been working on it for over a year. Um, the first book took about a year, took a year off to tour and like just work and make rent. And, um, and yeah, a year after that, we now have a second volume, which is super, super exciting. We've both been working super hard on it, and I definitely couldn't have done it without Elena Rose for so many reasons in so many ways and so I'm really grateful for her not just as a tour buddy and a co-editor but like a person in my life. <laughs> um, I'm going to kick us off by reading the introduction to the book. It feels a little weird because I'm so happy and the introduction is so depressing but um, stick with me guys because there's going to be a great number of performances after this. So the you know, my hope is that people are going to be reading this for years to come, and so the introduction is an attempt to situate this book in the time in which it was written. So it's going to be covering a lot of stuff that, like, we all lived through and you all probably know about, but um, that I don't know how much folks will remember in the future. So, with that... As I write this introduction, I'm being pulled in two very different directions. The first is to shake you and tell you that queer and trans people of color are being murdered in the street, in their homes, in gay nightclubs, and that those are just the murders that happen quickly. To say nothing of the slow deaths we die every day when no one will hire us, no one will rent to us, no one will give us the medical care we need. But the people I'm writing for aren't the ones that need to be shaken. The course of time over which I've been working on this, over which we've been working on this book, has been a period of extreme violence against LGBT people and people of color. Though it's debatable whether the violence has increased or just become more visible in this time. When I, when we started working on this project, the Black Lives Matter movement was not yet a part of the national conversation. It came to be after a number of high-profile murders of unarmed black men by police in the U.S. In 2015, the year in which we started working on this volume, a record number of trans women of color were murdered. In the U.S., they were mostly black. Toward the end of the period I w we were working on this book, there was a mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida on Latin night. Almost 50 queer and trans people of color died, mostly Puerto Rican. 
While it feels important to contextualize this book in the historical moment it was written, it doesn't only matter because because queer and trans people of color's lives are being cut short. To an audience of people who aren't queer and trans people of color and don't understand what we're up against, it's tempting to plead stop killing us and want to prioritize the way violence and the specter of death hang over us every day. But this book doesn't matter just because we're being murdered in the street. It matters because the artists in this book are fucking brilliant and you need to know about them. It matters because it's a book full of good stories and hopefully useful advice. It matters because black and brown genius is criminally under-recognized. It matters because twir- I keep saying twir, sorry you guys. <laughs> Queer and trans artists don't always have the resources to document their work and it can be difficult to capture or quantify the impact that it has on others. I want straight and white people to know what we are up against. I want queer and trans people of color to know that our lives are possible, that we have a future, that we can because those that came before us made space for us in the world. Now we are trying to make space for others. Thank you. It's just been such an honor to work on this book. It's like, you know, I... um, I get to talk a lot about how great it is because it's mostly not my own writing. It's other people's that I edited, so I don't get to feel weird about saying how amazing it is. But I've read this book already a million bajillion times because I'm the one who figured out where the commas should go. Uh, <laughs> and as the like, you know, deputy of apostrophes, like this is this is amazing. It's like legends of Latino punk rock and queer hip hop and textile artists who take the fabric of police uniforms and turn it into uh, statements about the stories that are missing from the news. Um, it's, it's singers and, and playwrights and poets and painters and people who are preserving languages that otherwise are are almost dying out. It's just like as an array of really incredible artists and activists. It's just it's been such an honor to to work with their work and love it and really sink in as an editor and and make sure that I care enough about each of these transcripts to to frame them beautifully for reading. Um, and it's been it's been a lovely process getting to collaborate on this thing and have arguments about whether or not we capitalize religious right uh, <laughs> and uh, and all of the other stuff. So. Uh, thank you so much for being here to support this book, and we're gonna we're gonna move on with the show before I get too gushy. I get a little bit mystical about this, which is good when you're keeping track of commas. Um, but it's also my job. So um, we're gonna move right into our first performer, who is the aforementioned Kim Tillman, and I'm really excited about this. So Kim is LA-based and therefore local and therefore someone you should know. Yeah, yeah, like that. Um, And is a singer, songwriter, lead singer of the band Tragic Gadget, which is a great band name, oh my god. Um, I feel like that had to be on a whiteboard somewhere under band names, you know, that someone was excited about. And half of the music duo Kim Tillman and Silent Films. Her songs have been featured in film and television, including American Girl, Sage Paints the Sky, the 2014 documentary feature Off the Floor, on Love and Hip Hop, Atlanta, and the ABC Family series Switched at Birth. Armed with a honey velvet voice and precise evocative lyrics, she aims simply to move you. <laughs> Welcome her to the stage, please. Hi, 
So what's what's funny about that bio is I've always been embarrassed because Jesus, it sounds ridiculous when I say it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, honey velvet. I promise. I do my best. I know. I need a. I need hype people. Um, I myself am someone who tends to be pretty hype, and I don't. I haven't played in a bookstore in about ten years. The last one was in Berkeley. I don't believe that it's still open. It's a shame. It's a glorious uh, opportunity that we're here today. Um, what else? I've played in a Chinese food restaurant. I played at a Trader Joe's. Sucks. <laughs> uh, somebody stopped me and was like, hey, hey, stop playing. Where are the beans? <laughs> Everybody thinks you work for them. Uh, but in this situation, in this space, I work for me and all of you. So let's have a good time. Uh, this is a song called Overboard. I brought them with me. I have several copies. I'm willing to barter. I, look, I like good jokes. You know, show me what you got. Show me what you got. Some of you know what that is, and I like it. This is Overboard. If you like it, come get one. There are sharks in the water. I see them circling. Baby, you're diving overboard, but you refuse to swim. You wanna be free, you wanna be broken. You're looking at me, I can tell what you're thinking. I see the siren song is strong for you, but you gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake. You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake. You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake. Don't take it, don't take it. It's only natural. To want to test your limitations I don't want to be an anchor No, no I just don't have the patience You want a new life, you want to be chosen You're reaching for me, but my eyes are open I see the siren song is strong for you But you gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake Don't take it Don't take it Tide is rising. Don't let a single wayward day define you. You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake. You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake. You gotta shake, 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 shake yourself awake. Don't take it. That's overboard. Um, I spend a lot of time playing music by myself, so uh, I encourage everybody to make some noise. It's a, it's a 
It's a nice night. We made it. We're all here together. Uh, I just I wear this hat all the time. It says U.S. Defenders of Civil Liberties, 1969-2015. Stay queer as fuck. It was a gift from the people at Lockwood 51. I wear it all of the time. Go see them, especially if you if there's a beefcake in your life who likes to let everybody know. Um, if you've ever heard of the podcast Welcome to Night Vale, woo! I'll do it if you don't do it. That's all, I don't care. So I'm gonna get comfortable. Don't steal my car. Um, if you've heard of the podcast, welcome to... Uh, you can have it. <laughs> welcome to Nightvale. Um, my friend Sam is a producer friend of mine, and we've been doing this since we were 19 or so. And we are Kim Tillman in Silent Films. We have a song called Evelyn that is in uh, Welcome to Nightvale, episode 69, Fashion Week. Check it out. But I hear the episodes are fantastic, and I haven't heard them all yet, so can you confirm that, Tevin? They're fantastic. Great, thank you. <laughs> Just bring a mic over to you. Um, so if you like it, that's a place that you can hear this song. I'm a machine without a switch. I've done my best to go without it. Every blue moon I get convinced. Make it happen by myself I've been awake To see the day Devour the night And I've seen decay Give way to growth And make the most of nearly nothing The human voices wake us in Down and we drown Seductive and impeccable abuse Do it to yourself I bet you know you do I love you cause you know I do it too are killing me preoccupied by what I could be I get so high on my ideals don't calm me down but you can meet me where I land I left the bay in pursuit of lucid dreams now I drive for days to make my way back to those old familiar places so human voices wake us and we drown and we drown and impeccable abuse You do it to yourself I bet you know you do I love you cause you know I do it too Oh and the mountains gotta move I push myself to circumvent it And when I reach the other side See, we've both been reinvented I've been awake To see the day Devour the night And I've seen decay Give way to growth And make the most of nearly nothing Till human voices wake us And we drown and we drown Seductive and impeccable abuse Do it to yourself I bet you know you do I love you cause you know I do it too Human voices wake us and we drown and we drown Seductive and impeccable abuse Do it to yourself, I bet you know you do I love you cause I do it to you too Who knows what poem that is from? Anybody? 
Who knows what poem that is from? Proof Rock is correct. Oh my God, you're my people, truly. Truly, you are my people. When I was in college, I had to write the same paper six times about that poem, and this song is me having fucking figured it out. Um, I was going to try and keep it real literary, because uh, my friend Robert Zimmerman got offered a Nobel Prize recently, and, uh, you know, it's a good day for songwriters. Tell your friends, we can win these now. Um, so I was going to keep it way, way literary and just deeper. deeper. Um, but I got a request to play a song from my friend Nia, who was on tour. And when I was on tour last, last summer, one thing that we did is everywhere we went, we were like, some people are our VIPs, and we're going to play them some play them some songs. Normally, honestly, I would say it's all of you, but tonight's Nia. Nia is my VIP tonight. Uh, Nia, you don't even look at those people. This is just you and me. We're hanging out. We're at your house. We're at your house doing the first interview I ever did. And this is for you. Oh, P.S. The guy who wrote this was a lit major. <laughs> my best. It's alright to tell me what you think about me. I won't try to argue or hold it against you. I know that you're leaving. You must have your reason. The season is calling and your pictures are falling down. And it happens once again. I'll turn to a friend, someone who understands, sees through the master plan, and everybody's gone. We've been here far too long, face us on our own. Well, I guess this is growing. The steps that I retrace, it's a look on your face, the timing and structure. Did you hear? <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, he did. A day later, Buckshort, I'm writing the report. I'm losing and failing. When I move, I'm failing now. And it happens once again. I'll turn to a friend, someone who understands, sees through the master plan. And everybody's gone. We've been here far too long to face us on our own. Well, I guess this is growing. Oh, oh no, I have more. There's more to do. I was just going to let you know that Mark Hoppus tells a lot of great word jokes in his Twitter. So follow him. <laughs> He's got a lot of real cute puns and, you know, you just seem like the type. Um, I got one more for you. What, what else is there to say? Uh, I've been in L.A. for about, fuck, years? <laughs> Five years? It, it, the first three, you're just like, ah, all the time. And then, and then you look around and you're like, oh shit, I'm still on the ground. Oh, I haven't even taken the first step. Oh my God. And then sometimes you show up somewhere and it's a room full of gorgeous people who seem pretty happy that, to be here with you. And shit, if that's not enough most of the time. Um, thank you, Nia, for having me and for being so supportive of all the stuff that I've been doing for years. And, and it's so exciting to see what you're doing. Your book is next to Dave Eggers' book. <laughs> Our book. Your book. Our book. Our book? Our book. That's us, man. We did it. Um, thank you. Please do more. I want to see the magenta cover. 
Yes, volume three. Thank you for being one of the people who makes that joke. <laughs> I want that. Uh, I'm still up here, shit. Hi. I'm going to do a song called Long Shot, and that's going to end my night. I just, just want you to know how exciting it is to be here and, and how cool it is that we can be here together. You know, we talk about how many things can happen to a person and how many things that happen to people like us, whatever that means, whatever people like us is. But we're here together. In fucking Hollywood. It's not so bad. We're doing something right. Um, so cheers to all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, please be excellent to the people in this bookstore because they've been excellent to us. Um, and, and truly enjoy the rest of the night. I'm Kim Tillman. This is Longshot, and I'll see you all later. found you Where were you dreaming to go What did you imagine when my arms are wrapped around you And what would you say yes to when I've said no It's a miracle you're near me It's a long shot that you'll stay Oh you think you see me clearly I'm a long, long ways away I'm a long, long ways away I'm a long, long ways away I brought a gun to a knife fight once It messed the whole damn thing up We tried to settle Who is the best among us I pulled the trigger, now we're all just out of luck It's a miracle you're near me, it's a long shot that you'll stay Oh, you think you see me clearly, I'm a long, long ways away I'm a long, long ways away I asked for truth when I was young so I might know what I was running from I learned that lies are better currency Yeah Now I can't seem to keep them off of me It's a miracle you're near me It's a long shot that you'll stay Oh, you think you see me clearly I'm a long, long ways away 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 I'm... Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna have a feeling about that. Sweet baby Sechmet, that just happened. So, um, <clears throat> I have a new favorite singer. Uh, maybe some of you do too. And that's a delight. Um, 
being inappropriate with my cane, don't mind me. <laughs> Never let them tell you that people with disabilities can't be sexy. Um, so, moving on, before I embarrass myself, um, I feel like I'm going to say that everyone is one of my favorite writers tonight, because everyone is, but I'm just going to say it a lot. So, the next person up is one of my favorite writers. Uh, <laughs> and the winner of the People Before Profits Poetry Prize. So, therefore... Lots of people's favorite writers. Uh, Melissa Bañales, a.k.a. Missy Fuego, is the author of Say It With Your Whole Mouth, Poems, and the Chicana punk rock coming-of-age novel Life is Wonderful, People Are Terrific, which is on the table and which was a 2016 Lambda Literary Award finalist. She was a fixture in the San Francisco Bay Area spoken word and slam communities from 1996 to 2010, where she became the first Chicana to win a poetry slam championship in 2002. She's a visiting professor of literature and counterculture at UC San Diego, and the feature film of her novel is currently in pre-production in Los Angeles. I am really looking forward to that. Put your damn hands together for Missy Thank you for giving me a second to get situated here. Okay, thank you. Hello. <laughs> uh, so all you need to know is that uh, this novel takes place in the 90s in Santa Cruz and San Francisco. Our heroine, Missy Fuego, is 18 years old. Um, she's first generation Mexican-American uh, here in Los Angeles. And the first in her family to go to college, she gets a scholarship to go to a hippie university. Um, but of course, money proves to be very difficult, and she ends up getting involved in the sex industry. And of course, the whole time, she's coming out and becoming a feminist at the same time. So uh, it's a really good time. And <laughs> <laughs> to be alive. <laughs> uh, so right now, uh, just, just close your eyes. It's 1996, and it is fall. And this is called In Regards to Anarchy. It was a week after being chased by the skins. I decided that Santa Cruz was a pile of shit and that this whole college experiment was a big waste of my time. I was supposed to be in Seattle anyways. I was supposed to be in a band like Mia Zapata. But being smart fucked up all my punk rock plans. And Ricky going to prison. And my sister Espy getting pregnant again. And Nisto. Well, my brother Nesto really didn't do nothing, and doing nothing is its own stupid-ass problem. So my parents laid this whole trip on me. I was supposed to be in a big, burgeoning scene, not being held up by Nightpoint and chased down by neo-Nazis. I was supposed to be in college, really be in college. I wanted to dedicate myself, but the truth of the matter was that the school was also full of crazy white people. The forest, the dark. It gets very dark in the forest. After being there almost six weeks, I was still stripping in the city, on weekends. I thought I'd go norms and get a job at some coffee shop or restaurant, but every time I would leave the end of my shift, I felt cheated. I was pulling the same moves there to get tips that I was stripping at Michelle's Triple X back in LA and making far less money. That's really the kicker. The money. Don't let no one tell you different. Oh, I'm sure there's lots of girls who do it for a million other reasons, but I'm not one of them. I'm a shallow, get-rich-quick kind of bitch, and if dumb motherfuckers want my attention, they're gonna have to pay for it. It's just that simple. <laughs> I 
was walking down Pacific Avenue and I was going over all of these deep thoughts <laughs> when a scraggly white girl with a fucked up mohawk stumbled towards me. Now, when I say a fucked up mohawk, I am not playing with you. I mean fucked up. Like it was lopsided and cut by a three-year-old. And this chick, she stumbles towards me and she's like, what's your name? And I don't know, something in me finally snapped. Maybe it was a situation with the skins a week before. Maybe it was all the fucking rich hippies at college driving BMWs but don't seem to have enough money to wash their clothes or take a bath. Maybe it was just being 400 miles away from the neighborhood, from dark faces and all the realness I'd come to know as the only way to be down. I can't tell you. All I know is that the me, the real me, just came out. And all my straight up LA Mexican head swinging chola tough bitch of a girl attitude I said two inches from her face, what's your name? And she took a step back and just kind of looked it at me. Then she smiled. I like you, she said. And thus began my friendship with one Anarchy Romeo. Anarchy was my true introduction to gutter punks. She had a squat underneath the San Lorenzo Bridge in the park behind the main downtown area. It was very organized and pretty quiet over there. She managed to rig up a series of waterproof tents with some phone cord and a series of well-tied sailor knots. It looked like a kid's fort or a clubhouse, but once you stepped inside, it was a nice place to live. She even had cable TV. I spent much of my time there, and to be honest, we didn't always sit around and talk. We would just sit, and I liked that. I was sick of this stupid college routine. We always had to come up with something brilliant or funny or interesting to say. That shit was a mask. I was raised in a family where it was okay to be quiet and just shut the fuck up because poppy worked nights and slept during the day. Do you want some? Anarchy asked, passing me some kind of crush powder. No, I can't. We get drug tested because of the scholarship. Oh. Then she'd snort it, whatever it was, and we'd keep sitting. So I was thinking, you still want to score some money? Yeah, I need to. But you're not going to make me steal, are you? Since when do I steal, she said. And she was right. She never had to steal. She just had this way of getting what she wanted. She was always smiling and nice to people. And they never saw that coming from a girl like her. It was hard to say no to a smiling stranger. And men. There was this mystery she had with men. Even with that fucked up mohawk, they would just give her shit without expecting anything. I know it sounds too good to be true, but I've been friends with her for almost a month. Practically held up in that squat with her. And there it would be. A bottle of Jaeger, drugs, clothes, smokes, food, a $20 bill. These dudes, okay, men. Like the kind of men that come to the club. Suits, straight up suits. Would come down to this squat and they'd bring stuff by and talk for a while and then leave until next time. So we're going to skip ahead a little. And uh, Anarchy basically tells Missy Fuego that uh, she has this gig where all they have to do is be naked and touch each other. And these guys who think they're into Baba Tantra stuff, uh, they find it spiritual. And they find paying for it uh, a religious experience. So uh, she decides to, to do this. On Saturday, we went to the mountains. <laughs> I hadn't been to the mountains before, except in Mexico. But in Santa Cruz, it's more forest. A shit ton forest. 
four forests. Okay, you're probably wondering why I have such a trip on the forest. The truth is, I'm scared. Look, I know it's usually the big city that scares people with the noise and the lights and the violence, but at least you know people are around. You know, civilization. The only time I'd ever seen the forest was in horror movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween. Okay, Halloween doesn't take place in a forest, but every time I have to walk through that college at night, that song, dun 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 dun, it just keeps playing through my head and I can't think straight. My condition with going to this Baba Whatever's house was that we do it during the afternoon, during daylight. I was not about to get stuck up at that place at night, no fucking way. The bus dropped us off at the base of the mountain, which is more like a giant hill. We walked up this bike path with trees, so many trees. Finally, we reached a small clearing, and as we walked through it, there was Baba Whatever's house. Anarchy was right. It was amazing, huge, like a giant tree house with lots of windows. I imagine that I will have to come to terms with nature because this is probably what the future is going to look like after the revolution. You want some of this before we go in, Anarchy said, showing me some pills. Okay, fuck that scholarship, I think. Anarchy crushed the pills really fine with the butt end of her knife. Then she took out a straw and we shot. It was a straight shot up my nose and I was thankful because I couldn't get too fucked up trying to shoot more than once. What exactly is this guy's name? Anyway, I think it's Ed. But he wants us to refer to him by his Baba name. What? What's that? Baba Gory. What? You're fucking joking, right? I told you, it's all tantra spiritual shit. I wasn't sure I could keep a straight face calling him that. But for 250 bucks, I was willing to go the extra mile. We rang the doorbell, which sounded like a gong. Then a fairly well-built man in a skirt-like thing and long brown hair and a modest goatee came to the door. He just stood there for a second, smiling and looking at us. Anarchy gladly smiled, but I wasn't sure what to do. Then he put his hands together in front of him like he was going to pray. Namaste he said namaste anarchy said and we went inside Baba Gori took us to the back of the house to a giant open room with all kinds of statues and flowers I think the statues were from India the entire back wall wasn't a wall at all but a giant window and all I could see was trees he didn't ask my name or even call anarchy by hers which was fine by me this is where we will be practicing today do the two of you ever dabble in gem lore In gem what? I asked. Gem lore. It's the study of gems and how they affect your life. When Baba Gori spoke, his voice was slow and breathy, like a tantric Marilyn Monroe or a fucked up open mic. Every word was pronounced with each syllable, like the act of talking itself was sex. It would have been sexy, but this was work, so it was just weird, and he was weird. And fuck, man, I was just a Chicana from South Central LA, so everything was either weird and or strange to me. I've picked out some sacred gems that I think will help us on this journey today. And what is our journey today, I asked. He just smiled and then began to take off his skirt thing. Wait a minute, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Oh, don't worry, Lakasha. I'm only allowing my vessel to be in its natural state. Lakasha, I said, my eyebrow raised. Yes, you are Lakasha. I've met you in a past life. You're a great communicator, diplomat, and artist from 840 BCE. I knew we had met before when I looked into your eyes back at the front entrance, but that was many lifetimes ago. You probably don't remember now. 
Yeah, she has a bad memory for past lives, Baba. Anarchy chimed in. Anarchy and I took our clothes off, and Baba sat cross-legged towards the back of the room with his eyes closed. We sat there for what felt like a million more fucking lifetimes. I'm now in touch with you. You can begin, Baba said. Anarchy turned to me, and it occurred to me that it was the first time I'd ever seen her naked before. She was beautiful. Stunning, actually. It was the first time since we'd met that she really looked it into my eyes. Except for that time I got kicked out of that straight-edge show at the vet's hall for arriving drunk and then projectile vomiting onto the security guard. And then the last thing I remembered was waking up in the park near her squat the next morning with anarchy leaning over me, looking me in the eyes and saying, you are so awesome and inappropriate. (laughs) But since then, never. She leaned in slow and began kissing me. Her mouth felt good and she turned out to be a good kisser. She kept kissing me and I realized I hadn't been kissed since Natanya, the love of my life, broke up with my ass. It had been four long months of my mouth hitting bottles and making a pout that I almost forgot how good it felt to be kissing. Anarchy put her hand around the back of my head and pulled me in, kissing me more intensely and I could feel my body responding to her control of the situation. Yes, I can feel the energy you are sending out, Lakasha, to Trindessa. It's so powerful. Papa Gori's voice came in, his eyes still closed. Then he started to sway a little from side to side. Anarchy kept kissing me until I finally accepted that this was really happening. And I kissed her back. She seemed surprised and actually giggled a little. I kissed her some more and I pushed her hand away from my head and then pushed her down on the floor, straddling her and holding her down with her arms outstretched. I began to grind my clit against her pussy and force my mouth on her so intently that at times she couldn't breathe. Do that again, she whispered in my ear. And I did. I kept going until out of nowhere she picked me up and body slammed me down on the hardwood floor. Her forearm at my throat while her other arm held my thigh down. She had her mouth in my cum, but she wouldn't taste it. She just kept blowing hot air from her mouth onto my shaved pussy, making me crazy. And then Baba Gori swaying became stronger and his voice louder and less breathy. Yes! Keep going! The energy of the gods is immense right now. I sense the two of you are working out an ancient conflict. Karma has finally come to take what's hers. And he started chanting like those people who speak in tongues or some shit. And Anarchy kept holding me down and the harder she held me, the more I could feel myself surrender to her. I didn't want to fight her. I wanted her to go harder, rougher. And I don't know if it was all that hot air on my pussy, but what she was doing and the fact that she just wouldn't touch me down there, it made me a little pissed off. And I suddenly felt my knee kick her in the stomach. And she flew a few feet away from me and sat there for a moment, a little dumb. And then she caught her breath and came at me, knocked me down, sending me back against some of the sacred gems that Baba Gori had set out and placed on the floor. Then we were like full on wrestling, using all of our strength that happened so fast. And Baba Gori kept rocking and yelling, the violence of creation is calling. The forces of nature have all risen to meet us at our historic feast. Yes, yes, give birth to each other. And then I slapped her and she slapped me back and it stung. And my reflexes gave through to a punch to the right side of her face and her lip was bleeding and then we stopped for a moment and she took some of the blood from her lip stood up and rubbed it across her chest she then got on all fours and crawled towards me I was ready for her to fucking kick my ass but instead when she reached me she took my face in her hands and kissed me very sweetly 
She kissed me again and again, and we went back to making out. Then she sat back on the floor and pulled me on top of her. We were directly in front of Baba Gori, who was crying a little now. And the two of us just kept touching each other and kissing. And then she looked it at me again, or she looked it into me. We just looked at each other for a while while she put her hand on my heart. And then she took my hand and put it on hers. And then it got quiet, all kinds of quiet. After a few more lifetimes, Baba Gori finally stopped rocking and returned to just sitting, being still. Then he opened his eyes. Thank you, Lakasha and Trindessa. Thank you for letting me bear witness to your ancient struggle. I feel that your past lives are finally at peace. This has been a good practice, he said in his original tantra breathy voice. Baba Gori got up, put his skirt thing back on, and invited us to dress our vessels. We cleaned up in the bathroom. He walked us to the door again, gave us the money, and gave us the gems from the sacred room. To remember what you have done today, he said. He shut the door. We walked down a mountain, not speaking. I put the gem in my pocket so I wouldn't lose it. I decided I never wanted to lose it. Anarchy took hers and threw it into the forest. Why'd you do that? I said. It's just glass. Don't worry, it's not worth anything. She smiled. Don't you want to keep it? Why? It's just some glass from some guy. I know another guy we can do this routine with, she said. I was walking ahead, making sure she didn't see that I cared. I was. Sorry, I wanted to steal your car, and I was watching. I know, me too. I don't have a car right now. It's important. Um, so, goddamn, um, life is wonderful, and people are terrific. Um, Beyonce's friends with the Dixie Chicks. Supergirl's sister is queer, and that just happened. Um, it's a magical world. <laughs> Um, I apologize, I did not open with a content warning. We've got all kinds of stuff in this show. <laughs> um, sex and violence and oppression and colonial history and all manner of business. So if you find yourself having troubles or overwhelmed, there's no shame in stepping out and taking a breath and getting somewhere quiet, and you're welcome to come right on back. No worries. We support that kind of thing. Um, also, wow, that... that that was amazing. I cannot wait to read this book. Uh, <laughs> our next performer is a dear old friend, uh, Nadia Ann Abukar, who is sometimes local to L.A., occasionally local to L.A., and is an artist, writer, and practitioner of the holistic healing arts. <clears throat> she has been self-publishing her own zines since middle school, and they're amazing. And the most recent was the Iconoclast Revolutionary Love series, which highlights the complexities and confusion that arise from loving in the fifth dimension, which you should try. <clears throat> Ultimately, she always comes back to the realization that self-love is the best kind. And she uses all of her creative production to create an optimal climate for free love. So show her some of that free love, please. Nadia and Abukar. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Whew. Okay. 
that was awesome. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous. Can you guys hear me? Okay. All right. So, um, yeah. So uh, I'm new to LA for the second or third time. Um, <laughs> And um, I'm going to be offering some holistic healing for survivors. Offerings coming up soon with my friend Cynthia here. So uh, if you're interested in that and coming to any events that we have, please talk to one of us so we can get your info and tell you about it. Um, and I'm going to be reading a few poems from my zine, The Iconoclast 2, Revolutionary Love Poems. Um, they had it here. I, I think it's sold out. But if you want a copy, you can get an e-zine copy from me. Um, so here it goes. Okay, I'm a little bit hot. I'm a little bit hot. I'm a little bit nervous. Yeah. <laughs> More than a little bit hot. Come on. Thanks, y'all, for having me. Thank you so much, Nia and Rose, for inviting me. Um, everyone, check out their book. All right, let's get into it. I keep a diamond in my mind. It's been gone for a long time. Thieves stole it, robbed me blind. They broke it down and sold it, said it was never mine. They called it by a different name. Delegitimized, no way for me to lay a claim. Immobilized from proper thought, I refrain. Silence inside of me, lobotomized in the brain. The thieves, happy with my lack of movement, put me in school. I was a good little student. Learning from the best, I crafted my attack. Expert extraction, I stole my diamonds back. Outlaw riding out for miles. Inside, I'm so tortured. Outside, I'm all smiles. World won't admit it, so I play along with it. I find home wherever I go. Plant seeds with intent, but I'm gone before they grow. Mama was a dandelion. Baba was a rolling stone. Making love on the road now is just all I know. I'll be fine if I can just be left alone. Well, it's true what they say. I'm the only one of my kind. And I always, always, always keep a diamond in my mind. So here's another poem from the Iconoclast, too. And these are all poems I wrote um, inspired by my time in L.A. Take apart the bones in my face. You will find we are not so different. Lattice work of veins like lace, body, blood, and brains. You 
look at me like I'm an animal. Well, I look at you the same, but not like it's a bad thing. Synapse to synapse, condition to response. On the spiritual plane, thinking of material thoughts. Meditation, how I maintain you, should do the same. Thinking that you know me, you don't even know my name. Making money ain't never been a thing. Fuck fame. In hot pursuit, I got what's everlasting on my brain. I'm just a queen flipping chess in the game. Stress makes a diamond, at least that's what they say. Open up your heart, that's how you pray. Commodify a product and that's how you get paid. Not everything you lose is a loss, they say. You know, you can't take it with you on the final judgment day. Well, my body, my vehicle, it's all that I got. Project your fantasies on me. Make me everything you want. Getting paid for the products, but the money still costs. Bitches like me learn to work with what we got. This is just my life. I'm me, you're not. We live many lives. Material world, young girl, struggle to survive. No love, chronic pain, I got my bills on the brain. Making money ain't a thing, but it just don't feel the same. Paranoid by all these eyes is fucking up my game. I should have paid attention, it ain't no one here to blame. Never expected anything, I never asked her for a promise ring. With open eyes wide, can't compromise the offering. Sacrificial lamb, never crucified in vain. Ecstatic revelations told me not to be afraid. Ancestors and angels told me, don't you turn away. You were born for this, my child. Freedom is your name. Thank you. So this is a poem I wrote about being Palestinian and um, specifically uh, for people that don't understand that I'm very proud to be Palestinian. Okay, so. In my world, settling is not something we do. It's something done to us. When colonizers spill blood, it's a gold rush. They bust guns, blow us up over land lust. They want something to leave for their children. They want to take it from us. They take and take, and some of us even let them test our faith and break our trust. Defeated legions of survivors traverse the globe looking for somewhere we can just be. Some give up hope of ever feeling free. We're always on the run, no matter where we be. Some pick out their eyes in blind passivity. They'd rather not see. But some of us are free. Some of us are free. Some of us are freedom fighters. Some of us are freedom riders. 
writing poems for every death, building home with every breath. Nomads in no man's land, our only homeland, we understand, we understand, we overstand, we stand. Resisting psychic death with everything we have. Building a nation with every breath. Setting fires for every death. No one gone in vain. We remember. We never forget. Not ever. But don't stay stuck in the carnage forever. Growing up into these cycles, all we know is to sever. Quick to cut ties over pride or whatever. So skin to skin, we are better together. In my world, settling is not something we do. I am royalty, in case you want to know why I be acting so brand new. <laughs> I carry my ancestors with me in every step. It's just what I do. So why would I settle for you? <laughs> Thank you. It's been, what, seven years since we shared a stage? My heart. Look at all. There's even more of you since last time I was looking. This is amazing. Uh, find a seat if you can. Squish in if there's room. There's all these folks standing in the back. Wow. Y'all. <clears throat> so, moving right along. How are we doing? Are we breathing? Are we settled in our seats? On there? Yeah? All right. Rika Aoki, Yay. another of my very favorite writers, I get to just say this, this is great, this is like uh, a dream night, is the author of Seasonal Velocities and Hemele Ahilo, Ahilo's Song, and Why Dust Shall Never Settle Upon This Soul. She's been honored by the California State Senate for her extraordinary commitment to free speech and artistic expression, as well as the visibility and well-being of transgender people. Rika was the inaugural performer for the first ever transgender stage at San Francisco Pride and has performed in venues including the San Francisco Pride main stage, the Columbus National Gay and Lesbian Theater Festival, the National Queer Arts Festival, and Lady Fest South. Rika also appears in the recent documentaries Diagnosing Difference and Riot Acts. She has an MFA in creative writing from Cornell University and is the recipient of a university award from the Academy of American Poets. She's a professor of English at Santa Monica College, so if you're over there, sign up. There's a lot to learn from this one. And you can find more at www.ricarica.com. Give her a hand, y'all. Hi, everyone. Um, so, congratulations. I remember when we did our interview, we did, I was, I'm in volume one, we did our interview, so we sort of guerrilla style in the library room. It was just a lot of fun. You've grown up. The books are nice. Mm. And let's see. Is Kim still here? Is she still here? It was just kind of fun. Oh, there you are. Hi. Yeah, I had the same situation. I performed at a Chinese restaurant, you know. People asked me for another plate of ribs. <laughs> it's like yeah I know it's just like 
dude, but you know, whatever, you know. So anyway, the whole trick with this, uh, this is, I'm going to read from Hemelia today, Hemelia Hilo. Um, this was a whack book because it's published by Topside, which is a queer trans press, which is, which, they're pretty cool. It's, but my question was, can a trans woman of color write a book about being a person of color? Uh, this is for my grandparents and stuff. So the weird thing about this book is um, people read it and they go, where's all the queer stuff? And then, like, you know, the the Asians will read it. You know, they finally got around to reading it, and, and now they're just kind of, like, stunned. But just going, you know, why is it on a queer press? So, you know, part of my challenge to y'all, it's like, you know, it's like, it's more than just intersectionality. It's like human beings live there and, like, kind of chill, okay? So... <laughs> So I'm going to read a little bit, introduce you some of the first characters, and probably talk a little bit about food, and a little bit about a volcano, and maybe some fish, and we'll end with some dance. Okay? Good. All right. Um, also, I had to learn how to speak this way, um, so I may be dropping this. I wrote this in Pigeon, so Hawaiian language, a little bit. I kind of made it a little easier to understand, so I'm doing pigeon light, but it's a little bit more comfortable for me to drop into, so I'm going to assume you guys stay all local, and we're going to there. Okay. Harry was kicking it in the store when he met Mr. Yates. Actually, he never knows Mr. Yates at first until he was invited for coffee and found out that, yes, indeed, this man was Mr. Steve Yates, the very, very high makamaka commuter guy who would just buy one huge chunk of Hamakuoko slime. Mr. Yates had come in to buy fishing supplies. He never knew much about fishing. He mentioned something about cheese for bait. And the girl helping him was more interested in taking care of her two-inch Hello Kitty fingernails than telling him that local fish know like cheese. <laughs> was kind of sad, so Harry decided to help the haole out, at least for starters get him set up with a bamboo pole for kitchveke or hole hole or something near the bay. But then haole man said he liked one golf night fishing off the cliff in his backyard. You, night fishing, off on cliff on side. Harry blinked. Sure, if you like me one dead stupid howl, go right ahead. But then everybody going to say, man, that was one stupid howl. Howley man, look his shoes. And Harry thought, well, of course stupid Howley going to get pissed off. After all, after all he's still one stupid howl. But suddenly, Howley man laughed. Well, stupid's why I'm here, right? It never makes sense and made even less sense when Mr. Steve Yates invited Harry over to his place on Wednesday for coffee and for talk story of fishing. Now, 100 times out of 100, Harry guarantee would have said no, but this Howley said so, seemed so strange that he thought, whatever, not much happens on Wednesday in Hilo, so he shrugged and Mr. Yates gave him his card and left. Once he was gone, Hello Kitty girl looked over and asked Harry if Howley meant still going fishing, why he never buy any fishing stuff? And they all went laugh at stupid Howley. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to drop over to Nona. Nona Watanabe was still learning, trying to learn hula. After three years practice, she still not could get her feet and hands to match. Actually, nothing about her match. Her house never matched her Chevy, never matched her blouse, never matched her shorts. Even her slippers never matched, but at least that was intentional, one gift from her rascal nephew Darren in Honolulu. Her favorite color combination was orange, purple, and green. And even though her family had no trace of Filipino, okay, maybe a little Filipino, but nobody ever talked about that. <laughs> 
whenever the halal dance, Takumu no Alani Choi, put her in the back row. Nobody ever said it was because she was fat or ugly. Noelani was far too sweet to say something so awful, but Nona knew her place. Just because someone's day one terrible dancer and fat did not mean she was stupid. She also knew that of all the beginning dancers, she had been there the longest, except for Frances Silva, who had been at least 80 years old for as long as Nona knew her and couldn't always remember the steps. All she wanted was to blend in with the rest of the halal. How many times Nona felt like crying? Not just for herself, but because she felt she went ruin another good performance. She never liked be one star, or get one solo, or even get anyone's attention. All she wanted to do was match. Harry said none of this mismatch business mattered. He said orange and purple and green was beautiful, like the island itself. Harry wished, Nona wished she could believe him, but Harry was a man who could barely make rice. <laughs> As she watched the oven, Nona tried to hum the song she was already supposed to know for the upcoming show at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. She faltered, stopped, and started again as the smell of her perfect chicken began to soak through the kitchen like one lazy, silky sunshine on one perfect Saturday afternoon. So anyway, here, somebody stay trying for steal Nona's recipe, and that's Noelani, and I like Noelani because she's evil. <laughs> so this is the tale of the evil plate lunch. Mm. Once upon a time, there was two plate lunch shops. Once, actually, once upon a time, there were dozens, but one by one, they went closed down because the owners wouldn't retire, and the kids either wanted to go mainland or open one car stereo shop. So now, there were only a few, and of these few, there were two. One of them was Gotos. Gotos had operated for generations without incident and would have liked to continue to do so, but people started making fun of its name. Not in one Pilau kind way, but when Togos came to town, power already was too easy for make joke. Shozo Goto, a tough, stringy, beef jerky kind man, used to get all bothered by this and kept one bottle of Maalox in the refrigerator next to the Mac salad. But when Mr. Goto died, his wife and kids were a little more relaxed and about the name, and they even made t-shirts that said, Gato Goto, Goto Gotos. <laughs> now, Goto's food was okay. Not great, but you could always get your food quick, even when the other place stay and the burger stands were all crowded. Of course, that implied that not too many people went to Goto's, but since the family owned the property and had nothing better for do, there was always a good chance that there would always be a Goto's with a crusty bottle Maalox still sitting next to the day's fresh Mac salad. Now, where things was really busy was Matsuoka's. Now, Matsuoka's was known as the bestest, most onoist plate lunch on the island. Lots of locals and even tourists would flood the shop every day for taste the most authentic local food they could buy. Especially the young ones who wondered how the food at Matsuoka's could taste just like Grandma's secret recipe, Kao Kao. But that, however, was the dark secret in the plate lunch world. The reason it tasted like Grandma's secret recipe was because it was. <laughs> The entire plate lunch shop, the entire plate lunch shop community knew the Matsuokas were evil. Charlotte Matsuoka, the store's matriarch, built her plate lunch empire by stealing the best recipes from all the island. 
When she found a recipe she wanted, she would peek inside the kitchen or tell one of her workers to go talk to one of their workers in the bowling alley or while they stay fishing. Now, most of those guys work for next to nothing, and hey, if you're going to buy me one 12-pack meal, I'll go tell you what goes inside the pork tofu. <laughs> Sometimes the recipes were even more closely guarded, but that never stopped her either. She had been a beautiful woman and was well known in the plate lunch community how Charlotte had ruined more than one marriage by having an affair with the husband only to dump him when she got the recipe for the rib marinade daikon kimchi or taco poke. (laughs) One time, she even secured a pork adobo recipe from a Filipino family that had been carefully guarded for generations all the way back to Mindanao. Nine months later, her daughter Eva was born. People snickered at the dark-skinned baby coming from the Japanese couple. But Mr. Matsuoka said nothing, having long ago submerged his wishes beneath Charlotte's insatiable plate lunch ambition. (laughs) Okay, going to end just one, two, three more. Ten. Okay, Charlie. And sorry, you guys, you're going out one by for coffee, and I stay in Pigeon already. I'm not going to come back. Oh, but anyway, um, these books, I bought some because this is supposed to be for that book, but because these two stay so generous, they said, go bring that. So this is usually $18.95. It's 15 If you buy that book, I'll go to 10 Okay, so just letting you guys know, I'll take off eight ninety five from the book if you want to do that. And uh, if, if you get one choice for buy one book or the other, buy that one. That's what they stay here for. I stay on, Rika, Rika, on Amazon. Okay, try look. Yeah, okay, good. Okay. Uh, let's see, try it. Okay. Should I read this? Sure, why not? This is about um, one of the uh, musicians. His name is Saul. And uh, he's a kind of a strange guy because he's really good looking, but he doesn't go out to anybody because he's in love with this girl he met when he was 12. And this is what happened. Saul was only 12, visiting his family on the big island. Honolulu boy used to hang out at Ala Moana or Pearl Ridge. He, you know, he would eat at Liki Liki Drive-In. His older brother and sisters would complain about the Kaiko'o Mall and the lack of nightlife in Hilo. Back then, never have the, even the Prince Kuhio sender, let alone the Walmart. So they took off to Kona, leaving him with his parents and his auntie and his uncle. Now, people who look at Hawaii on the map, they see everything so close together, and they think, you know, Hawaii is the only one place. But every island is different. Saul noticed the differences. Even the Simon and Malasadas were different. He noticed that the smells on the big island were a lot clearer than the smells on Oahu. He could smell the orchid, the fish, the ocean at high tide. Someone's still cooking rice. Not all mixed up hustle and bustle like Honolulu. He never smelled car exhaust at all. Then he smelled something so faint he never could ignore. It's the wind blowing off the volcano, his auntie said. The volcano... Can we see? His auntie and uncle shrugged, and so they went off to see Pele. The color of Big Island dirt is different from Oahu. I mean, Oahu looks, dirt looks like dirt, almost like mainland dirt, stuff, umber, brown, kind of like the color of the plants and grasses that die and dry out in the sun, maybe with some kukai like that. The stuff is dirt. 
on the big island. But what covers the ground is different. It's alive. It's red. It's fertile, like upcountry Maui dirt, but even more red. Like, or the rainforest black, full of beetles and mulch, or crunchy with cinders and lava, because the island's still young. In fact, some of it stay even now, waiting under the earth for be born. As they went up to volcano, Saul saw the landscape come even more different. He smelled another smell, sulfur. And from the vents that were still steaming from the earth, he looked inside. He thought he saw moss growing, but was not moss, was, was crystals. And what smelled like rotten egg. And his uncle pulled him back, said, hey, don't get too close, the steam can kill you, you know. And he listened, but he still never could turn away. It was getting late, and they were getting hungry, so they stopped at the visitor center for goshishi. And then the grown-ups started talking about where to eat. Now Saul was a good kid, and he did what he was told. But he had never seen anything like the vents before. So when he got back, it was already a little darker, and he had to lean a little to see the crystals. But then suddenly there was a pop, and a plume of steam came up from below. Someone grabbed his hair and jerked his head away from the flames. Watch out! Saul turned and saw one girl about his age. What's your name this time? Saul, Saul Malani. And he wondered why she had said this time and why her voice made him feel ancient and like a baby all at once. Well, Saul Malani, that stuff is Pilikia. She laughed and was just like one local girl except her eyes was green. I know, but I wanted to look around. As he looked at her for the first time, he realized he finally knew what beauty was. You're so pretty, he said before he was thinking. She laughed. You always say that. Would you like some more hello berries? Are they good? Of course. Saul nodded. He tasted a berry and fell in love. She laughed when he reached for another. No can take all, otherwise Pele going notice. I was only going to take one more. I know, shh. She gave him two. They were sweet and tart on his tongue. And he would never forget that taste. Just not tell her, okay? She can get real mad. And she put her fingers lattice. She asked Saul if, she, if he liked the big island, and he said it was so different from Honolulu, but he enjoyed it. And he said... And she said, you can come live here one day. And he nodded. Because that's what you did when you answered your true love. Saul! Was his uncle. You better go now, Samalani, the girl said. And Saul turned around and back and noticed just before he turned, he realized that he smelled the rain and that the last rays of sun reflected green off her hair. Hey, Saul, where you went? The big Hawaiian was worried the way big Hawaiians can get, you know, all gruff like that on the outside. But you can tell inside they just stay all kind of full of, you know, mush. And Saul was going to tell him, except he never. He tried to tell him, but the words weren't there. And they drove away. And he could see the girl, even had the taste of the ohela still in his mouth. But he couldn't tell anybody why. Not that it really bothered him, Though everyone was a little sad because they had gone all the way up the mountain and the hello berries were far out of season. Saul had known a lot of girls and women since that time, but when everything started getting serious, he remembered her. Never faded the way memories do. And when it was quiet and still, 
and the smell of the earth and roar of the ocean was all that was in his head. He could taste three ohello berries and hear her song. So, how are we on time? Good? Can I read two more? Or should I just one more piece? I think I'll stay with one, because I want you guys to make sure you sell, okay? I'm going to cut it short. You know what this is? Not cut it short. I'm going to thank you for that. I want everybody, the, uh, thanks for everybody who read and performed with. It's been an honor. Um, and, uh, you know, these people are all nice. I know them. There's no jerks here. So if you like what you hear, uh, just come up and thank us, because, I mean, it, it's, it's what makes our world go around. So at the end, there's a hula competition. They've been working all. They've been working all. This, that's all competition. Okay. So here they are. The little halal spread itself on stage. Violet and Francis and Irvin and Eva and Nona. And rather than stepping powerfully or proudly, they seemed to glide as if they were floating, as if they were pulling silence from the night. Each of their costumes was unique, unlike any of the others, but somehow they all worked together like one of those mix-and-match sets of Japanese dishes. And there's silence. Most people couldn't understand what was happening, but even those who could, such as Millicent Punui, asked, how can silence be so powerful? Then from the distance, seemed like one angel was singing, but was Noelani. But you knew that. And everyone is expecting Noalani to come out. But she never. Everyone was expecting Cool Ipo, the band, to play. But no, it was chanting. And instead of Noalani, another of the dancers walked to the stage and began. Violet's smile was a smell of belonging to a choir or a family like a middle child or one plate lumpia next to the mac salad on the picnic table. Wanted, wanting to be wanted. Easy, like when the nighttime comes, it's the time for sleep and you no question because you're tired anyway and had one full day and you get already get everyone, everyone's lunch already and packed. And oh, it feels so good to have someone next to you and you know the rascal kid's finally asleep because you can hear him breathing soft and quiet and your husband's still already sleeping and tomorrow going to be just like that too. Even now, when your husband no longer there, to visit his grave, to say, how much I miss you. And the kids are all doing fine, all grown up, and they send Christmas cards, and the new neighbor get one dog that digs up all the vegetables, but they're going to keep them on one rope. And now I stay performing with Noelani at one place. Oh, how I wish you could see how beautiful it stay. But then again, I know you're watching from heaven, yeah. Here then, I go smile for you. Then Saul lilted a melody over the ipu. Cam and Johnny Boy kicked in the guitar. And all of a sudden, it was music. Thank you. So I'm back, but the show's not over. (laughs) 
Um, I'm here to introduce the, the artist who's going to bring it all home for us tonight. But real quickly before I do that, I just want to encourage you to support the artists that are here tonight by buying merch. Rika has books. Kim has, um, I was going to say albums, but I guess CDs, singles. Um, Louisa has a few copies of her book as well. And then I have some zines and business cards that you can take that will tell you where to find the podcast. And our book, Queer and Trans Artists of Color, Volumes 1 and 2, are um, at the back, so you can get them, I was going to say on your way out, but buy it and then have us sign it for you. Have Rika sign the first book, because she's in there. And I just I just want to say thank you <laughs> again. Um, I don't know, the fact that like artists like you believed in me when I was just starting out and like no one knew who I was or what I was doing, to say it means so much is such an understatement. Like For the first book launch, um, Rika was the only artist that came from out of town, and she's a big deal, and she was willing to stay on my couch. <laughs> Like, if I had, I wouldn't ask you to do that again, but the fact that you did means so much to me. Um, so, yeah, thank you. <sighs> okay. <laughs> um, allow me to introduce one of the smartest, one of the funniest, and one of the most beautiful women I know, also one of the hardest working, Elena Rose. Yay! Right, I'm ignoring you while you clap. My back is turned. It's amazing. I'm drinking water like a regular person. It's okay, I'm still relatable. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's true. I'm so relatable. I do fun and normal human things just like anyone else. I'm definitely engaged in human activities and not anything suspicious. <laughs> fun and normal things only. <clears throat> All right, how are we doing for mic adjustment? Are we in a good place? I'm going to get loud in a minute. So I want to make sure that it's all there. I'm going to start with a classic, actually. It's a nine-year-old piece that I once cut on an album with some of the people in the audience. So I thought I would bring it full circle and start with something called The Seam of Skin and Scales. I am not a woman trapped in a man's body. This body is mine. It's me. And there is no man in that equation. And I am not trapped in it. There are a million and one ways out of this body. And I have clung to it, tooth and claw, in spite of an endless line of people and institutions who would rather that I vacate the premises and have sometimes been willing to make me bleed to convince me that they're right. This body is mine, and I claim it and its bruises, and it is not a man's, and I am not trapped in it. I have looked leaving my body in the eye, and I have said in the end, hell no. There is too much to do. There is too much to love. Too many who need one more of us to say hell no and help them to say the same. You might not like it. It might be a wrongness to you. 
Well, I am done with traps. I am done with the philosophy of traps, and I am done with the feminism of who owns my body for what cause. It is time for something that tells you that I am here for blood. My blood. The blood of my loved ones. The blood of people who have battered themselves against my life and found me still here. It is time for a feminism of the monstrous. That is this body. That is this me. That is the voice that says, get your names off my off my parts and, and your hands off them too that says stop colonizing my reality and telling me what I mean without listening to a word I say. What I may say may be in language incomprehensible, but there is a time for that and it is right now because this is a monster's creed. It is for the cobbled together, the sewn up, the grafted on. It is for the golden, the under the earth, the foreign, the travels by night, the filthy ship sinking, blood drinking, cave dwelling, bone cracking gorgeousness that says, hell no, I am not tidy. I am not easy. I am not what you suppose me to be. And until you listen to my voice and look me in my eyes, I will cling fast to this life, no matter how far you drive me, how deep, with how many torches and pitchforks biting back the whole way down. I will not give you my suicide. I will not give you my surrender. This is for the Lilim. Because you forget that the next part after your co-opted icon parts ways with Adam and goes her own way is, and she begat monsters. And she becomes terrifying. This is for the Gorgons and the vampires and the Chimeras, for Kubel and Baba Yaga, Hel and Ashtoreth, for Lamia and Scylla, for Kali and Kapoula Kina'u. This is for all of them with teeth. It is time to look the monstrous in the eye. It is time. It's time to say that we are beautiful in our fierceness and we are our own. We are not the rejected of what we can never be. We are what we were meant to be. We are not pieces of holes thrown together incorrectly. We are not inferior knockoffs of someone else. We are not mistakes. If our monstrousness is frightening, it's time we bare our teeth and draw that fear close to us and stop being so afraid of our fearsomeness that we fear everyone and everything else right back. I am throwing my head back here and saying it. No more being afraid. Hell no. My monstrousness is not a place of shame. It is a strength. It is the power to say, I am mine. And I will tell you what I mean, not you. I am not anything trapped in anyone's body. I am tougher than that. And I have plenty of blood to spare in this body of mine and plenty more miles to go before any of you can bring me to my knees. And I dare you to try. I am choosing to stay here. And it is mine to choose. And if that means changing shape, putting together the unexpected, well, that is any monster's ancient right. 
It is damn well traditional. And the only ones setting traps are the ones in our way. Boo. Hiss. A thousand, thousand slimy things lived on. And so did I. Here's something a little lighter while we're taking a breath. I'm learning to separate the bones and wrench at the joints with quick wrists to begin with. So here's where the leg and hip come open. Pencil margins in the cookbook, a wooden spoon not too cracked yet, and a knuckle rule for how thirsty we'll be an hour from now. It's how I learned it. Sour smells and garlic going green with its oil still sunk into my fingertips, watching for all those left-out steps and extra measures with someone's leftover salt on my cheek. In this kitchen, I am the peppercorn queen, and my laurel crown goes into the pot with the rest of it, because ruination can't touch our waiting for what needs another night to simmer. And it's no help pretending that this can't feed everyone here. I can't make this story sweet. It's for those of us who made it past morning again, not knowing what was left, when to clutch tight and when to cut cartilage, when to see that all the strength had boiled out of the bones, and what decay can make when you rest in it, salt and garlic and hard black pepper, what you can make out of what remains. Eat the fruit that's gone to flies and a swallow of old wine. I'm a Filipina. I cook everything with vinegar. Some of you know what that was a recipe for. (laughs) Rika's nodding like, adobo, yes, adobo. Uh, (laughs) They call that a roman, a clef. Um, All right, here's a quick one about exile, and then we'll have a history lesson. It's all right. It'll be a good history lesson. I'm good at history lessons. I get to brag. It's a book launch. It's great. There is water seeping up through the pores of the rock, soaked in from the bellies of glaciers, and it is so clear as it sings over summer boulders of hand-polished basalt that you can see the teeth of the spotted salmon hanging in the rush above the pebbles, pulling its tail back and forth like a hungry house cat. You can see the little fingernail caddises as they drag their stone clothes across the bottom. You can hear how the unencumbered that sweet water is as it arcs over the cataracts. There is a smell here of hot pumice dust and the thick face-wide clusters of white water parsnip on the banks, reeking of honey, of manzanita, and the dry leaves of sage and rabbit brush, and brittle golden grass and old pine needles pushing up at your feet of sap and dirty juniper and deer piss and bruised mint in the shade. And on the best days... On the best days, there's a crook-winged osprey, eyes shaded with bone, crashing down into that clear water and bringing up a lacerated fish into the open air, merciless, perfect muscle and satisfaction. I don't live there. 
I rode and ran uphill, past irrigation ditches crusted with pesticide foam, past the icy hemlocks, past the tree line, and back down again, past empty lakes with pontoon docks rotting in the mud, down past green fences and shepherd shacks, over bridges where I drowned what used to be my name. I don't live there with the sweet water in the cataract and the rattling grass. I rode and ran far from winter, its fingers on the teeth of the earth up and down again from the drowned places and curse markers and muck. Rushing, new, rushing, under, rushing, past with the flawless murder of the osprey behind me and stone in my fingertips until I lost the hip for running. I don't live there where the river and the river meet thick algal sucking and strawberry runoff and shipping cranes where sky and skin are gray and I can find no cousin anywhere I don't live there where I clasped hands by the orchard where the city relinquished its stink I don't live there by the lake of herons where my bones rotted out and everyone with a grocery cart looks like my grandfather's wife and muscles crust the shore without knowing this isn't the ocean and the plosive faucet could never decide on a temperature I don't live there where I left everyone and all my old skin. There is water seeping up through the rock full of salt and iron. From the country of the dead it flows through me. Somewhere soon the river cuts the beach crumples cold over the narrows and welcomes in the waves. All right, we're going to get extra Filipina here for a minute. You may have been worried. It's time. And this is, this is the last one. So, <sighs> ain't you all sweet? All right, here we go. <clears throat> the 38 Special Colt Official Police Pistol was invented to shoot Filipinos. The United States duped us into believing that they would support our anti-colonial revolution against the Spaniards who gave me my name. Except it turned out that we were too brown, too stupid, too savage to understand the civil governance of a nation. So the Americans charitably turned their guns on us as soon as Spain was out. And they shot at us, and we kept getting back up. So they called for home, and they asked for bigger guns to fill the mass graves with. The same guns that got brought back and used against the Panthers, that got turned on Harlem, that rode the hips of the officers who faced down Itliong and Huerta and all the rest. I think that 38 Special rode on the hip of David Fagan in 1899. A 24-year-old corporal from Tampa sent up from the boondocks some sent up into the boondocks to knock down some Filipinos with it. We invented the boondocks, you know. Boondocks, mountains out in the upcountry where the indigenous people are, the Igorot and the Kalinga, the Eta, who descend from the very first adventurers to explore beyond the shores of Africa, who the Spaniards, ever creative, called Negritos, and put at the bottom of their fresh new caste system. And the American soldiers, they looked at those Negritos, and they looked at David Fagan, and they called them some of the same names. 
David Fagan got up into the boondocks and he saw black Filipinos in front of him and racist white men behind him who paid his salary and promised a pension waiting back in the States alongside segregation if they let him come home alive. And he looked at my folks and he said, you look like home to me. You, you look like who I should be fighting for. Your revolution is my revolution. And you are where my love should breathe. David Fagan defected from the American occupying army and took up arms with the Filipino resistance, along with a handful of other black soldiers, and they made their homes with us up in the mountains, and they were heroes. And when things got quiet enough that the bounty hunters came for him, the locals showed them a head to hang that price on, rotted already, and hey, it's not like you can tell us apart anyway. That is definitely not David Fagan over there with a sweet little house in a sweet little mountain village with a Filipino wife and kids and a little green garden plot. He saw us. And he said, damn the people who sent me here. They can call me traitor. You look like home to me. And you are where I want to make my home. These are stories that are in my bones. Not on my skin, mixed and mixed and mixed, lightened by shtetl survivors and estrogen pills. The skin changes. Especially for us who are the Chinese we fought off, and the Spanish we fought off, and the Americans we fought off, and the Japanese we fought off, and the Americans we fought off again, whose grandmothers and uncles tried to scrub the brown out generation by generation who are never just anything. But that heritage is in my bones, in how they're shaped. I look at the same faces that Fagan saw, and I see my grandfather and my great aunt and the beautiful broad nose that I didn't inherit from my mother, the kinks that loosen to curls, the cheeks and chin that go like this. And I have my ancestors' teeth and toes and eyelashes. I see people who look like home, who don't look like the people who sent me, who don't look like the people paying my salary, people I should be fighting for. And when I look at David Fagan, I see the world to come. Because when does that day come? When my Asian brothers, my Pacific Islander sisters, my cousins scattered as janitors and nursemaids and soldiers all around the world, when we look at black faces and see home there. How long can we turn aside from Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland and say these are not our people? How long can we armor our hearts against the piercing loss of family every day? How long can we pretend that the people behind us are our friends and the people in front of us don't matter? Who is making those police uniforms thread by thread? Islands cut off from each other. Haiti, Puerto Rico, Taiwan, and made in the good old Philippines. Who is raking in the money, pitting the profitability of the prison labor of kidnapped black Americans against the imprisoned labor of the sweatshop in Manila? What weapons are our cousins weaving for pennies a day? Import, export, tear gas, and riot armor 
with corporate offices in Cleveland and St. Louis and western Pennsylvania, sound cannons and maser guns tested in Palestine and sold to downtown Oakland, the tactics drilled in Iraq, trained into the NYPD, locked factories everywhere, and my people failing to remember who helped us get free. Look, Asian Pacific Islander politics are weird here. I'm a granddaughter of the Bataan Death March, and I'm supposed to have as much in common with a granddaughter of the Japanese Imperial Army as I do with a Samoan sister, and we're both supposed to have more in common with a white guy than we do with David Fagan. But the people he met knew better. They recognized him as one of our own. In this conversation, I know we can feel left out. I know we can feel unaccounted for, caught in the middle. We're used as proxies and patsies and ammunition, paid scraps for the dirty work of white supremacy that always leaves us holding the bag when it goes south. Enlisted to stand at the front of the invasion and occupation over our black kin, just as those buffalo soldiers were once set against us. And we allow it so that we can pretend that we are above this. We make livings off of the leading edge of gentrification. We ignore and excuse police who walk by us on the way to easier targets. We squeak in for scholarships so we can say big words like solidarity and complicity. And we borrow black strength when we feel weak and vulnerable. And every time, no matter what we may pretend, it is a choice. I get tired of hearing that we don't deal with racism and that we're basically white. And the get out of our neighborhood explosives in my parents' front yard and the shouted slurs of my whole childhood call that a lie. It's not like we haven't faced violent mobs and redlining and miscegenation laws right here. But if we don't want to be seen as the foot soldiers of white empire, we damn well better not be acting like them. If we want community and identity and real strength, we know where to stand. I never in my life saw so many Filipinas in one place as I did marching for black lives from Fruitvale Station to the Coliseum and all our cousins with us too. There is always a choice. We who had our homes taken from us, whose motherlands are battlefields for the rich, we're taught to stand on you who were taken from your homes, who had everything ripped away, even your names. But we have a precious treason available. We can together make something new out of the bones of our obliterators. We who learned insurgency and bled it into our children on these shores, our job is to see your revolution and join up. It is to take everything they fed and armed us with, every resource and weapon and book, and effect, desert, betray, and come home and fight. Our ancestors knew better than to turn aside from this. And it is long past time that we look at black struggle, all of us, and say, you look like home to me. And I want to make my home with you. If we're caught in the middle, it's time we declare. If we're pushed to the front of the invasion, it's a shorter distance to run to the right side. It's time to be like David Fagan, to be like Grace Lee Boggs, to be like Yuri Kochiyama to show up and shut this thing down and stand up for our family, to take up arms with you, to grow old with you if we can, and to put it all on the line, because there's no coming back from rising up when you do it right.
If we don't see it, we can learn. If we're not ready, we can get ready. And we can start where it's already been done. You look like home to me. You look like who I should be fighting for. Your revolution is my revolution. And you are where my love should breathe. If I want to make my ancestors proud, it can be nothing less. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.